introduction, and I hope that uh, what I have to say tonight will be an appropriate Eli uh, Neshama in memory of the deceased. Um, this is a time of year when Jews feel a great deal of anxiety, and so I'd like to tell you a little story about Jewish anxiety. It's a story about two Jews who um, hatched a plot to assassinate the Tsar. And so they knew where the Tsar would be passing by, and they went to a certain place, and they camped out there. They knew he'd be coming at 2 o'clock. And they wait. 2 o'clock comes. Not there. 2.30 comes. Not there. 3 o'clock. Still not there. 3.30. Not there. Finally, one Jew turns to the other, and he says, Oi, I hope nothing happened to him. <laughs> um, we do... We Jews tend to uh, overdo it sometimes. <laughs> okay. Um, when, uh, when I gave Judy the title of the talk uh, a couple months ago, Repentance and Free Will, um, I didn't really know what it is that I would be talking about exactly. Um, as I developed the talk, I came to see that I could have given it a much more precise title. And that more precise title would be something like this, Repentance and Free Will colon, rhetoric and reality. There is a gap, I maintain, between how Judaism sometimes speaks about free will and the reality of free will. And let's head straight into exhibit A of this as we go to uh, the source sheet on page, uh, page two of the source sheet. It's a statement made by Maimonides at the beginning of the fifth chapter of Hilchot Shuvah, the laws of repentance. And Maimonides writes, again it's page two, uh, chapter five, Maimonides writes, free will is bestowed on every human being. Rishut l'chal adam netunah, every person has free will. If one desires to turn toward the good way and be righteous, he has the power to do so. If one wishes to turn toward the evil way and be wicked, he is at liberty to do so. And in the part that I did not reproduce here, Maimonides goes on to say that anybody can become like Moshe Rabbeinu, and anybody can become like the wicked Yeruvam. Anybody can become compassionate and kind, and anybody can become cruel and uncaring. It's all in your hands. And he quotes the verse which we read this past uh, Shabbat, I've placed before you today, says God, the choice between life and death, good and evil, and it's your choice, it's all in your hands. And later on, at the beginning of the seventh uh, uh, chapter, which is page three here, if you take a look at um, chapter seven, just the first lines here, since every human being, as we have explained, has free will, there is because there is this sort of extravagant endowment of free will for human beings, a man should strive to repent and, of course, to renounce his deeds. Now, these are very, very strong words. And no sooner are they out of Rambam's mouth that we might notice a small point to begin with. And that is that Maimonides says we have free choice. And he says, after all, God tells us, 
look, I place before you today the choice between good and evil and the choice between life and death and you should choose life. That's what they call putting a gun to your head, making you an offer that you can't refuse. It's not really much of a free choice. I'm reminded now of a story, my favorite story, about a philosopher who loses his job in academia and he goes to work for the mafia. And uh, his first day on the job, he walks up to somebody and he shoves a gun in the person's ribs and he says to him, I'm going to make you an offer that you can't understand. <laughs> uh, but in this case, God is making you an offer that you can't refuse. But the problem here is deeper. That is the problem of just how much free will do we really have. I'm going to read you something that you don't have on the, in the source books. The, a, a, a brief selection from one of the great Bale Musser of the uh, 20th century. In fact, uh, his obituaries called him the last of the great Bale Musser, Rav Shlomo Volbi, who passed away last year. Um, and he writes in one place as follows. He says, we should ask ourselves, we adults, do we use the power of choice frequently? And he says, Tva'im, meaning your natural constitution, Chinuch, your education, Hergel, habituation, Unigiot, by which I think he means sort of the sorts of interests and incentives that you find overpowering. Sholtimbanu kimat shalton muchlat minoar Basically, education and our upbringing and our habituation, they govern us from the minute we're born, from cradle to grave. He says, therefore, in fact, it is possible that a person live all his years without ever having to use the power of free will. He says, yes, I know that is an extreme case, but he says, nevertheless, we can say, ki fo'amim nidirot ma'od, very rarely, anu mishtamshim we only very rarely use choice. And given how rare it is, he says, where is choice? And of course, one could compound the problems, or the issues that Rabbi Wolby is raising by thinking about contemporary developments in neuroscience and genetics, which gives us so much more by way of explanation of human behavior that doesn't necessarily involve conscious choices that people make. His example of education is particularly interesting, and he comes back to it a little bit later on. When he says about education, he says that in, in education, you must deal with every person as if he had no Bechira. As if by teaching him and indoctrinating him in a certain way, he will become the way you want him to become. Treat them as if they do not have free will. That is how we actually do it. In the end, of course, many people do rebel. They use their free will to rebel against their educations. But in terms of what Chinuch supposes, in terms of what education supposes, it supposes uh, little children who are malleable, who, who are receptive to, to uh, what are they called, carrots and sticks of various kinds, and who will walk away with certain impressions from role models, and if they have a good time in the classroom, it's going to affect the way they relate to the things that are taught, and so on and so forth. Uh, along with this, he might have also mentioned one other thing, and he might have mentioned uh, Shiduchim. Certainly in many communities, people want to know an awful lot about the family when they ask about a Shidduch. It's not simply a question of status. 
there's an assumption that as the parents are, so will the children be. And this assumption then is that environment greatly shapes the way you are. There are other ways um, in which free will seems to be limited. I mean, suppose that one day you decide to uh, go to the Vatican uh, to hear the Pope address the assembled people. And the Pope begins to talk, and he tells a dirty joke. Now, you are amazed, and you turn to your friend next to you and you say, did I hear right? How, how, the Pope told a dirty joke? How is it possible? And your friend says to you, well, you know, there is such a thing as free will. He's exercising his free will. It's obviously a pretty silly answer, because we know that people do act according to sort of set patterns of behavior. And given those set patterns, there are certain things that they simply can't do by virtue of the kind of people they are. Look, if I were to offer you $5 to torture an innocent baby for a half hour, you would reject it, I hope. Otherwise, I better leave. You would reject it. Now, I think it's not just that you wouldn't do it. I think there's a sense in which it's clear you couldn't do it. It is psychologically impossible. Now, somebody once said, well, what about for a million dollars? Or a figure that's on my mind since I teach university, a hundred million dollars, right? <laughs> By the way, when you uh, throw in my twice high to that, it really adds up. You know? <laughs> if I offer you that, well, yes, then maybe you would not only consider it, but do it. But that doesn't affect the question of whether when the offer is five, you could, you could do it or not. There are certain set patterns that we work with. In fact, we often pe- treat people in a kind of deterministic fashion. Suppose that you have a criticism to make, uh, you know, you're, you're upset by something somebody did, and you're deciding whether to approach the person and sort of call them on it. Well, your decision is probably going to be based on what you know about this person from the past. Is this a person who's receptive to criticism, or is this a person who's just going to go ballistic and never talk to me again? We often make projections based on what we know about the people. We treat people, in other words, as I said, in a kind of deterministic way. Now, a point, one uh, sage who saw this point uh, very clearly is Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, who will be making generous use of tonight. If you go to the source book on page five, Um, the paragraph that's marked off the words Rabbi Abraham ben David and then you go to the fourth line writes the Rav free choice does not mean a state of chaotic anarchy with sudden and frequent changes of mind that have no rational explanation if a man switches too often from one mood to another he's considered insane if a man constantly changes his mind for no reason he's lightheaded and fickle if his actions frequently contradict each other he will be regarded either as hypocritical or as being downright crazy. In other words, <clears throat> we usually expect a certain display of consistency in a man's thought and actions. We expect him to embody a certain way of life with its own consistency of character. The law of cause and effect, action and consequence, does prevail in a man's life. He reacts to various phenomena in a set matter and manner and not according to haphazard caprice. Go to the very end of the paragraph, 
and the Rav puts forward the question that obviously emerges from this point. The question now is, man's behavior and responses are, so to speak, set and predictable. Where does free choice come in? Almost the exact wording is Rabbi Wolby's question, there is um, an answer people sometimes give to this that goes back to Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle was troubled by this question as well. He says, how is it that we can praise people, blame people, hold them responsible if they are really just doing things based on their characters? And Aristotle's answer is, well, they choose their characters. In other words, at some point early in their life, they chose to be a certain way. Uh, many philosophers and legal theorists who dealt with Aristotle's position believe that it is a myth that most of what we are is not determined by choices. Our character traits were given over, as we talked about before, through education, through upbringing, through the context that, that we lived in. Uh, and all this is not to deny, of course, that there, is, that there is such a thing as free will, but it is to say that the scope is constricted. Now, there's one Jewish thinker who grappled very heavily with this point. And it's a thinker um, named Eliyahu Dessler, uh, who was um, one of the great, again, one of the great Ba'ali Musser. He was in the Panovich Yeshiva, died in 1953. Uh, his English, uh, there was an English edition of a work called Mikhtav Me Eliyahu. Uh, it's called Strive for Truth. Uh, by Rabbi Dessler, it's now in about its fourth volume. It's very simplified, but it's uh, uh, still, you know, I think a good representative sampling with some nice introductions. Um, Rabbi Dessler's view, which I'm going to describe to you, uh, is one that I thought I understood until about a half hour ago. <laughs> I've been teaching it for many years, and then I realized the problem in it, and now I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to be giving it to you, be giving it to you right, uh, but I'm going to present it the way I know it. I will tell you in advance that this view is a bit, had became a bit of a political football um, for re in, the, in the Haredi community uh, for reasons that you'll understand after I talk about this a little. Rabbi Dester holds to a very striking thesis. And that is that most of what a person does is not an instance of bechira, of choice. Most of it. Free choice is extremely limited. Why is that? Well, first of all, much or most of what you do is determined by your upbringing. And you're not responsible for those things that you did only because you were brought up a certain way. Uh, he gives an example, which he actually got from another... The example of uh, Lot, where Lot was praised by Chazal uh, for, um, and said he was rescued from Sodom because he didn't spill the beans on Avram when Avram said that, uh, uh, that uh, Sarah was his, uh, was his sister he didn't spill the beans and say it's really his wife so the question is well why wasn't he also saved because he had the virtue of Hachnosas Archim he brought in the guests the three men or angels who came to the door right and the answer is given that that trait he learned from Abraham. So since he got it from Abraham, he doesn't deserve any credit for it. He gets no credit for it because he was brought up that way and he had a role model and it was all uh, sort of assimilated by him unconsciously. So we really have very little choice. And he writes, I'll just read you a sentence from the book. 
any behavior a person adopts as a result of training or by copying others is not counted as his own and does not stand to his credit on the day of judgment. Or, of course, you know, then you have to wonder, well, what about the bad trait? What happens then? What about punishment of criminals? And so forth. These are good questions, but that's his position. Now, he does say, though, that every person has a nikudat habachira, a point of choice. There is still some issue that has not been settled by your upbringing to date. So you might have been brought up a certain way, but you might still have before you a choice as to whether to give ten dollars to to tzedakah. You grapple with this choice, you know, you, you feel well, I'm going to be losing money. On the other hand, I'll be doing this, and you decide you're going to give the ten dollars. Fine. So you give the ten dollars. You now have done something which pushes your nikudat abchira to another place. In other words, the, the giving the ten dollars is now what he calls conquered territory. There's this image of the battlefront, and you wage certain battles, and whatever you, whatever a, a piece of behavior is fixed, then that's conquered territory, and then you move on to conquer other territories. So then you go to the next level, and at the next level you might have to decide whether to give a hundred dollars, right? And then you might decide whether to give uh, a thousand, and so on up to you know the usual hundred million, as I said before. Now, each of those choices is a new choice, and it's not completely determined by what happened before. However, your previous choices do determine many, many other choices. So you always have this small area of Bechira, this small area of choice, but it is small. Now, not only can't you sort of undo the way you, you, know, you, you are based on your past choices, but there are certain things you can't do because they're way above your Nekudat Bechira at a given time. I cannot decide, even if I had the money, right, I could not decide today to give $100 million because I am not up to that level of magnanimity to give $100 million. So I can't do that. That is an action I cannot perform. So there are lots of deeds that people couldn't, could not do Okay, simply because, even though they're very noble, because they're sort of not up to that stage yet. The picture you get here is that people sort of go gradually, they grow into other, into other choices. And of course, the reverse would apply if the person uh, you know, is a bad guy, then, then the choices that he makes, the bad choices he makes, determine later bad choices, and he keeps getting worse and worse. You know, one day he robs a bank, the next, bank, uh, next day he kills ten people, and so on and so forth. At each point he has a choice, but the point is he can't, even, even he... At the, on the day he's deciding to rob the bank, can't kill ten people because he hasn't yet. He's still his nikudat abachira is still at that point. So that means that there's a lot that you can't do. One of the things it means is that you can't sort of say to people if you're if you're trying to bring them to Judaism. I mean, he doesn't spell this out at all. But you could not say to them just, well, here's what I want you to do. You know, I want you to start tomorrow on learning all of Shas. It lies above the nikudat abachira that you're not able to attain it. So you have to go more slowly and more gradually. Now, why did I say that this view became a bit of a political football? Uh, well, back in 1996, there was a clinical psychologist named, I don't know if anybody knows him, I don't know, Dr. Baruch Saratskin. Um, Saratskin wrote, wrote a, a very interesting article in the Jewish Observer, which is the publication of Agudat Israel. And what he tried to do is to take Rav Dessler's theory them to the practice of clinical psychology. And 
he, he said, among other things, I'll just boil it down to one or two uh, quick points. One is that a psychologist ought to seek the causes of his uh, patient's behavior, that it is worthwhile to see what the causes are. And when you know what the causes are, you can also try to see which behaviors are changeable and which behaviors are not changeable. So, and don't you as a psychologist try to change behaviors that really are unchangeable. So there's the quest here for the causes of behavior. Number one, there is a kind of what he calls a psychic determinism, the idea that there are causes of behavior, psychological causes, physical causes, and so forth. And secondly, there's the idea don't try to manipulate behaviors that can't be changed. And he said, after all, we know from Rev Dessler that certain things can't be changed. Well, about two issues later in the Jewish Observer, um, uh, one or two people, two people wrote, you know, fairly, um, they weren't, they weren't uh, by two printed letters, but they were, you know, it was very clear they were very displeased with, uh, with Rabbi Saretskin had written. Uh, and then within a few months, uh, as often as has happened before with the Jewish Observer, uh, they had to backtrack a bit. Uh, you may know this happened once uh, published an article about Moses Mendelssohn and uh, later readers found to, um, to um, uh, uh, you know, appreciative of Mendelssohn, so they had to have some sort of, you know, a different position. Anyway, so an article appeared a couple of issues later talking about what is really meant by Nikudas Abakira, or what it said there is Nikudas Abakira. And um, Frankly, you know, I found that it was, you know, the article did make, you know, certain claims that maybe had some, um, something to them. For example, it said that uh, you don't have to assume that people can only change gradually. You know, I think that's a live, it's a live issue. It's an issue I'm going to come back to later. Uh, you know, I don't discount a lot of the things that were said. But <coughs> a key paragraph in that article was, quote, there is widespread consensus among Torah leaders and teachers throughout the generations against the practice of psychology of searching into a person's past experiences and environment to determine the decisive cause of his errant behavior. Okay, now you see now what is happening here, that this is the distrust on the part of the orthodox right of the profession of psychology, which is an old, old issue. Torah Hashkafa does not acknowledge that past experiences limit Bechira and that psychology can define a person's Nekudahra Bechira. Torah Hashkafa does not acknowledge that doesn't acknowledge past experience limit Bechira, doesn't acknowledge that psychology can define Yenikudasa Bechira. The focus on psychological causes does not help most people to change their behavior. Now, you look at this and you say, this is the heavy hero of Rav Dessler, right? And after all, the article claimed to be explicating Rav Dessler according to the interpretation of Rav Dessler given by his cousin, also named Rav Elio Dessler. Well, a very interesting paragraph appears at the end, which response to this question. I mean, after all, what they were arguing here is very much against, you know, what, what I had told you before. It is a grave mistake, they write, to assume that these descriptions, in other words, of the Rav Dessler's descriptions, were intended to serve as precise definitions of the nefesh from a theoretical point of view. When one learns Sifre Musar, meaning here Rav Dessler's uh, books, with the intended attitude, he will discern between an objective definition and an illustration intended to motivate avoda. In other words, some, sometimes you're not getting a completely accurate picture, rather the intent is to get to motivate you a certain way. Without heeding this principle, 
there is a danger of accurately quoting sections of Sifrei Musar while totally misrepresenting their intent. In other words, Rav Dessel didn't mean it. In other words, the Mikhtav Meiliyahu in this section is rhetoric. It's not reality. So you can no longer really extrapolate anything from the Sefer Musar because you've got to know exactly how to read it and it can come up meaning the opposite of what you thought. In any case, I think that this little uh, incident tells you a lot about how important this issue is in, in, you know, in, in, in religious thought, in Jewish thought. And I think what it points to is, well, we have points to uh, the following intermediate conclusion, that yes, there is free will, but it is limited and constrained, and our earlier choices and our upbringing shape our later character to the point that a lot of what we do involves acting deterministically. Now, we will soon see a way to perhaps alter this picture, but that's what it looks like. So, in other words, we began with this grand statement by Rambam, you know, with all of its rhetorical flourish, and now it seems that things look far, far more limited than then Rambam makes it appear. Reminded here of a story of uh, a story you found in the writings of the uh, Danish philosopher Kierkegaard. <laughs> We're Danish to a Jewish audience. I perk up. The, 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 uh, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard um, he tells the story of uh, a guy who sees a sign outside a store and it says, "We press pants here." So he brings in a pair of pants, and uh, the guy behind the counter says, "Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry." Uh, we don't, we don't, we don't press pants. That's not our business. He said, "Oh, but the sign says that." He says, oh, "We don't press pants. We make signs. That, that, that's our business." So, so um, in a way, on the issue of free will, you know, we make signs, and uh, you know, we make to be seen. And I'll finish out this analogy. <laughs> the rest remains to be seen. Um, this brings us. I was going to say this brings us to repentance. That's not quite what I meant to say. This brings us to discuss repentance. Um, repentance is basically the process of in some way, and we'll try to define later what way, undoing our past. And the discussion of free will is obviously relevant to this because it seems that the way in which you would undo your past is to somehow, by acts of free will, just undo the character that you have acquired all those years embark on a totally different set of actions and so on and so forth. I want to try to sort of clarify this issue. Um, let me also first mention something to you uh, that you, you have in the uh, sheet in the uh, book uh, that uh, I'm looking for Rambam and the Guard of the Perplexed. Did I remember to give it to you? I'm not sure. Oh yes, the last page. I'm sorry, page 8. Page 8 of the Guard of the Perplexed. Um, there's a uh, some years ago uh, I, I read a book um, by a uh, professor at Dartmouth named uh, Ronald Green and uh, the work is called Religion and Moral Reason very interesting book in which he tries to isolate a, a uniform underlying structure um, through all religions monotheistic religions polytheistic religions you name it and part of the underlying structure, he says, is that God rewards good and punishes evil. And he 
says there's another component. And the other component is that there must be a way for people who have done something wrong to have amends made for it. Because otherwise, they feel it pointless to continue. Well, Rambam had that idea first. Take a look at page 8. This is from the Guard of the Perplexed. Rambam writes, It is manifest that repentance also belongs to this class. I mean to the opinions <coughs> without the belief in which the existence of individuals professing a law cannot be well-ordered. Notice the belief in tshuva helps to contribute to a well-ordered society. For an individual cannot sin and error, either through ignorance, by professing an opinion or a moral quality that is not preferable in truth, or else because he's overcome by desire or anger. If then the individual believed that this fracture can never be remedied, as if he thought that once he messed up, there's no way to repair it, he would persist in his error, and sometimes perhaps disobey even more, because of the fact that no stratagem remains at his disposal. If, however, he believes in repentance, he can correct himself and return to a better and more perfect state than the one he was in before he sinned. The belief in, the, in repentance, in other words, the, in, in the possibility of repentance and the possibility of forgiveness enables you to continue as moral agents or as religious agents. If not for the doctrine of repentance, once you make a mistake, you would give up. That's what Rambam is saying. So it is an important doctrine to maintain. The, the cost of not doing so is moral slackening and eventually rebellion. <clears throat> That's basically what he's saying. So the question that we face very often as a community is, given the importance of believing in repentance, how generous should we be in asking, in thinking, whether repentance occurred in a particular case? To cut to the chase here, nowadays we often face the, what you call the uh, tshuva defense. Someone often in a position of prominence you know, has been found to have committed acts of abuse, harassment, or molestation. Then defenders jump on the scene and they say, oh, he did tshuva. Now, if there isn't evidence of recent repetitions and he claims to have done tshuva, should we believe the claim? And here I think we feel caught. On the one hand, one might say, well, don't we believe in free will and the possibility of repentance? On the other hand, we're often skeptical. You know what skeptical means? Skeptical is a little skeptic. <laughs> we are often skeptical, and rightly so. Um, one writer wrote about one particular case. He says, why has he not contacted the other women he victimized? Why didn't he offer to pay for the pain and suffering? But even when you have that kind of restitution, I mean, I think that you somehow feel that Tshuva just can't be this easy. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta said, it is harder to do one act of tshuva than to learn the entire Talmud. Now, therefore, the idea that a person can overcome urges, say sexual urges or compulsions, that was strong enough to undo his entire education and upbringing, if he says he can undo all that, and he did it just like that, if the many, many years of being mired in it, it's obviously something to be treated with skepticism. At the same time, you don't want to think about people unfairly, and you don't want to brand people unfairly for life. Well, 
even as we speak, my good friend Rabbi Dov Linzer is giving a shear at Yeshiva Shkobavei Torah about whether there can be tshuva for sex offenders. His approach is that whether the person does tshuva is between him and God. But the community... And he gives us a nice illustration of this line of thought, um, a, a seeming contradiction in the writings of the Rambam. Where in one place, the Rambam seems to say <coughs> that uh, heretics uh, do not, cannot, do, cannot repent. And in the other place, the repentance is not accepted. In the other place, he implies that the repentance is accepted. And he was challenged about this contradiction. And he said, well, here, let me explain. He says, it is possible that a heretic repents. But that's between him and God. I don't know whether he really has done it. But as far as the community is concerned, the community has to continue to treat him as a heretic. Now, uh, Rabbi Linzer develops uh, through a whole bunch of sources. I mean, we sort of you know, shared, shared our, our, our respective uh, thoughts tonight. Uh, develops through a whole bunch of sources the idea that you, know, you have to authenticate with hard evidence claims to have done, claims to have done tshuva. Um, and I would add here also that Rambam, implies at the end of the fourth uh, chapter of uh, Hilchos Tshuva that some certain behaviors are so addictive that it is very difficult to turn back. Uh, and on one interpretation, uh, this is what happened with Pharaoh when God hardened his heart. On one interpretation, which has been attributed to, to Rambam, it's not that God literally hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's that God set up a system of nature in which when you over and over and over do a certain depraved act, it becomes impossible for you to turn back. That's what it means, Hashem is slave paro, meaning the laws of nature as they were designed by God made it impossible for Pharaoh to turn back. And this certainly implies, Rambam would then be implying certainly that there are some views that, 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 that it is extraordinarily difficult and maybe even in some cases impossible to repent turn back from past behavior. Now, I mean, if, if one ought to be skeptical, as I think, you know, I hope, you know, I would think many of us are, even if we do feel a conflict here, I, I think it's interesting to ask the question, you know, sort of, is there another side to this? You know, is there a side which would say that, that repentance is far easier than I've made it out to be? And um, I just had two, I want to put forward two two possible uh, sources for this. Um, first, um, there is an idea which you have very often in, 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 in Chazal that tshuva can be achieved instantaneously. You have lots of stories of people who have been you know, terrible all their lives and then they come to the end of their life and all of a sudden they can turn it around. Um, and uh, you know, one story, for example, in the bizarre story, in, um, in Masechus of Adazar, it tells a story about a certain rebel, uh, Elizabeth Rudaya, who would have said, slept with every prostitute, and then he heard about another one, and he crossed seven rivers to sleep with her, and he wanted in the end to be, to, to, uh, but, but in the end, to make a long story short, he repented. Now, this is amazing. A man was basically being described here as a sex addict. But then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden he, 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 becomes, he becomes a penitent. You have a story like that, it promotes the idea that you can have these sort of instantaneous, instantaneous uh, uh, turnovers. Um, Rambam himself, 
writes in the um, in, 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 in the seventh parak of Hilchos Tshuva, which I again did not include, where he's speaking about how wonderful uh, <coughs> Tshuva is. He says Emesh, which usually people translate as yesterday. Rav Soloveitchik points out really means yesterday eve. And that was last night. This guy, he says, was sonui lefnei hamakom. God detested him, and now he says he is loved and he is he is a yedid of God. Now that again suggests this kind of you know sudden you know this this, this sort of sudden uh, 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 conversion all of a sudden you know it just happens happens overnight. Now there are sudden conversions. Some of you may work with William James on on these kinds of topics, and they've been studied. There is such a phenomenon, but the question is how easily to attribute them. And in the case of Rambam, I think this is another instance, I would, I would think, of Rambam giving us some rhetoric which is meant to inspire us and to have us, uh, you know, uh, believe that we can do it too. You can do it. You can do tshuva. And, you know, sort of, you know, hooray uh, uh, us on. But in the end, how literal is it? It's very difficult to tell. So you do have then this idea then of sudden changes and maybe that contributes to the idea that people in our society today can make sudden changes. Um, but he, I was talking to somebody about the, uh, the uh, Mel, Mel Gibson situation. Somebody said about this, yeah, Mel Gibson. And then somebody said, no, Mel Gibson claims that he wasn't doing penitence. After all, he was never an anti-Semite. But I mean, this discussion reminded me of uh, Jay Leno's uh, joke where he said that uh, uh, one day he said, Mel Gibson met today with members of the Jewish community his lawyers. <laughs> okay. Um, now, um, uh, by the way, this reminds me, you know, there's a, um, there's a certain kind of thing when you go to movies, you know, there's a guy, there's always some guy who's been acting, you know, awfully for the whole movie, and then finally somebody gives a little speech, you know, a nice, eloquent speech, and the person just changes completely. Uh, that, that's a movie type experience. That kind of, that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen. Usually, when you talk to people, it doesn't happen overnight. Now, a second thing that I think maybe leads people to think repentance does happen easily is the concept of siyata uh, deshmaya, of divine assistance, divine help in repenting. Gemara in Kedushin says, "Ilmole hakadosh baruch ozro." It's not for the fact that God helps a person. Lo yuchalo, the person could not conquer the Sahara. And uh, similarly, there's another medrash which says that God tells the Jewish people, if you open up for me a hole the size of the, the eye of a needle, then I'll open a humongous, you know, some sort of humongous space. You just get started, and then I'll take care of the rest. And after all, when we daven, what do we say? We say, God, bring us back to your Torah. You bring us back to, to, uh, to serving you. You bring us tshuva shlema. So we're praying to God that he be the one to do it. So God makes repentance possible. Now, so what this says is, yes, human beings can't really repent on their own, but once God is part of the process, then maybe these people who claim to have repented, you know, really repented, because even though it looks to us like they only did a little bit, God, you know, God, God did the rest. Now, it's interesting in this uh, regard, I'm sorry, regard, regard, that um, uh, Rav Soloveitchik takes a completely different view which, uh, about the role of divine assistance. I mean, basically, there is no role to divine assistance in Rav Soloveitchik's thought, and I don't quite know what he would want to do with, 
with this uh, with, with these sources I just quoted, um, where Rasalvechuk writes, uh, quote, Judaism has always held that it lies within man's power to renew himself, to be reborn, and to redirect the course of his life. In this task, man must rely upon himself. No one can help him. He is his own creator and innovator. He is his own redeemer. He is his own Messiah. There is no one can help him. No siyata deshmaya. I think this also reflects the view of Maimonides, uh, but I think that this is, uh, you know, something interesting to see how Rav Salvechik would address that. Maybe he has. I don't know. Some of the quotations which imply that there is divine assistance. But if there is no divine assistance, then of course claims to repentance become less credible. Okay. The last leg of um, what I uh, want to do um, tonight is to look at a particular drusha that Rasalovetsha gave, which I think illuminates some of the issues that we're talking about. Doesn't resolve them, but illuminates them. Um, in, in one of his drushot, uh, Rav Salvechik asks a question about the structure of Maimonides' laws of repentance. Laws of repentance is shaped as follows. The first four chapters deal with repentance. Then you have chapter 5, which deals with free will. Chapter 6, which deals with free will. Then comes chapter 7, which goes back to the subject of repentance. Rapsalvechuk's question is, why did he do things? Look what he did. He basically took the discussion of tshuva and he stuck something in the middle. If the reason the free will discussion is there is because free will is necessary for tshuva, then either put it at the beginning or put it at the end. Why stick it in the middle? The Rav's view is that basically the kind of repentance that the Rambam is talking about in the first four chapters is very different from the kind of repentance that he's talking about from chapter The kind of repentance that he talks about before the chapter on free will, that kind of repentance doesn't require free will. The kind of repentance that he's talking about after he introduces free will, that kind of repentance does require free will. Let's take a look. First, go to the first. Go, go first to the uh, first page of the uh, of the book. <coughs> this is from chapter two. <coughs> Maimonides says, um, "What what is perfect repentance?" It is so when an opportunity presents itself for repeating an offense once committed. And the offender, while able to commit the offense, nevertheless refrains from doing so because he is penitent and not out of fear of failure of vigor. Now, this is a definition you may be familiar with. It's a definition already in the Talmud. Basically, tshuva is, uh, perfect repentance is you are placed in the same circumstances you were in before, but this time you do something different. And it gives an example, which is also drawn from the Talmud. If a man had sinful intercourse with a woman and after a time was alone with her, his passion for her persisting, his physical powers unabated, while he continued to live in the same district where he had sinned, and yet he refrains and does not transgress, he is a sincere penitent. Now, to go a little further to that little Roman numeral two, three lines later, 
If, however, a person only repented in old age, at a time when he is no longer capable of doing what he had done, he can't even do the Avera. Although this is not an excellent mode of repentance, it nevertheless avails him and he is accepted as a penitent. In other words, you put in the same circumstances as you were before, and you, this time, you don't sin. And this it counts as repentance. And it's repentance even if you're not able to perform the sin for physical reasons. You know, Soloveitchik was basically asked about this. What's going on here? I mean, this is this is considered repentance. I mean, the old the case of the old man is really you know just wild. I mean, he can't do the sin. Why is he getting credit for repentance? Furthermore, even the earlier case where he's capable is problematic uh, for two reasons. One of which Rav Soloveitchik mentions. The other one, I don't. Yeah, I guess the other one is implicit, at least implicit. I mean, one one reason is that it is quite possible that the person resists this time, but the next time he would again sin. There are various sorts of behaviors people have where sometimes they don't sin and sometimes they do. A molester does not molest every child. I mean, it's just the way it is. We don't know exactly why on some, you know, some occasions the person is brought to that point and on other occasions not. But it just doesn't happen all the time. So this guy might very well have resisted this time. But the next time, you know, maybe he would have done it again. It's also like, you know, a, a dieter. You know, the person's on a diet. Uh, so a person refrains, you know, keeps the diet one time. It doesn't mean they're going to keep the diet the next time. So what does this really prove about it? It really doesn't seem to prove to prove much at all. Secondly, notice that even if the person would never commit this kind of sin again, it may be that the kind of um, traits or drives that led to the first sin is going to show up in a different way. I mean, he could be downloading pornographic websites or whatever, something like that. You know, people have certain there are certain kinds of uh, interests that drive people, and if it's not going to come out one way, it will come out. It will come out some other way. Uh, a person who who is scared of his boss and therefore is not abusive in the workplace may become abusive somewhere else. So, what really, you know, what really has changed about this this man? Basically, really, it would seem very little. Now, the Rav says about these cases, even, and here you go to page uh, uh, page uh, seven. He, he has a way of explaining these cases that I think uh, helps us a great deal. He, he says that in these types of cases, what you're doing when you desist from the action is you're basically getting rid of one symptom of what is a much larger holistic disease. And all that's happening is that on this particular occasion, this particular symptom did not show up. Now, how do you wind up making these choices, whether it's a sin or not sin in those cases? And here's what he says on the right-hand side of the page. He says, there is no legitimacy here, see this, in speaking of free choice. Because he's talking about the kind of example we were talking about before. Here, there is no personal determination by the sinner who is simply afflicted by two forces, each of which drives him in an opposite direction. He is torn between two magnets, each of which pulls him toward itself with immense force. On the one hand, driven by the lust of sin, and on the other hand, by the fear of awakening and you know, feeling worse tomorrow, and this deters him uh, f from sin. 
Basically, and look at the last sentence of the paragraph, but this collision of desire and the resolution between the two forces does not depend on the exercise of free choice. So essentially then, the type of free will, the type of uh, modification of behavior that was described in chapter 2 does not have to do with free will. He doesn't, now he doesn't say it never has to do with free will. I mean, it might, but it doesn't really require free will. All that's happening is just a collision of desires. Sometimes one desire prevails, sometimes another. Uh, I, I, re- I read something, um, it was a good description of this kind of thing I read in the work by the philosopher Robert Nozick, that sometimes when you're making a very difficult decision, and you weigh up the pros and the cons, and you know, you're looking this way, thinking this way and that way, and then your deadline comes. And when the deadline comes, you say, okay, here's what I'm doing. He says, very often, it doesn't feel to you like you made a decision. It feels like the decision happened to you because you really didn't have a way to weigh these different alternatives. So it was just sort of the two drives kind of fighting it out and one prevails. Now, now we go, though, Rav Salvechik says, to chapter 7, which is after Rambam has introduced free will. And in chapter 7, you have, go to page 3 of the <coughs> of the um, source book. Um, this is the chapter, chapter 7 is the chapter in which he's talked about the importance of um, uh, free will for, for repentance. And in, in number 3, he says, do not say that one need only repent of sinful deeds, deeds, emphasis here on deeds, such as fornication, robbery, and theft. Just as a man needs to repent of these sins involving acts, so he needs to investigate and repent of any evil dispositions that he may have, there is any bad character trait that he may have, such as hot temper, hatred, jealousy, quarreling, scoffing, eager pursuit of wealth or honors, greediness in eating, and so forth. Of all these faults, one should repent. They are graver than sinful acts, for when one is addicted to them, it is difficult to give them up. Now, what he's saying here is that there is another kind of repentance, not a repentance over individual actions, but repentance over your entire character, the character that previously informed the actions. Uh, a colleague of mine at Stern, Dr. Charles Bell, has this nice analogy. He says, look, suppose you're having trouble with your car. Bring the car to the mechanic. He says to you, well, it's the radiator. So, fine, change the radiator. Then, you, again, you're having trouble. comes in, fix the brakes, fix the brakes. Transmission, transmission. You know, and go, go back four or five times. Finally, it dawns on you, you need a whole new car. And that's basically what the Rav, what, what, what the Rav is saying, the Rambam is saying here. Because <clears throat> the kinds of acts you do are really dependent on the kinds of traits, on the kinds of traits that you have. <clears throat> the true free will is the ability to transform your traits. That's what's really required, and that's a higher level of tshuva than, than, than resisting, resisting acts. Now, he goes on to explain that when it comes to evaluating character traits, you're using your intellect. It's not simply inclination versus inclination, but there's an intellectual judgment as to which one, as to which one is better. <coughs> so then, the Rav has a kind of compromise here question of how free people are when they repent. When it comes to repentance over actions, there is not necessarily freedom. But repentance over character traits, that requires freedom, and you're obligated to, under, uh, to, to, uh, to 
to exercise that freedom. And so in a sense, we can be very easy. People, oh yeah, he repented. Yeah, he repented of that deed. But it doesn't mean anything essential about the person has changed. And that's something that you may have to take into account in later dealings and the community may have to take into account as well. A particular piece of behavior may have changed, but not necessarily the underlying personality. And it's something to be wary of. Well, now we sort of come to the end. To the last question is a, a story about a, guy, a speaker who's going on. I think I'm right on time. But a, uh, a story about a speaker who's going on uh, too long and he... Uh, uh, he, uh, he apologized to the audience. He said, I, I'm sorry, I didn't have a watch. And somebody says, well, there's a calendar behind you. <laughs> and I used to tell that joke not knowing he made it up. It turns out that I have, a, I have this colleague at uh, Stern College, Rav Alta Metzger, and he, um, he uh, heard me tell the joke at a Stern College gathering. And he told me later, he had devised that joke. I said, you were one of those brilliant men on the face of the earth. I, I thought it was a fantastic joke. Anyway, the question now becomes, of course, how to understand this idea of character tra- change, whether to understand it as rhetoric or whether to understand it as reality. And, you know, as I was sort of thinking how I was going to sort of uh, wrap up this talk, at one point I said to myself and to my wife, you know, I'm really not happy with this talk because the end might be a real downer. I should be inspiring people to, you know, change and just change and just change and just change. And really... That's not, you know, the ultimate message. Now, there are aspects of the modern world that have opened up new avenues for change. Uh, Psychotherapy, psychotropic drugs, and so forth. Um, And you may... um, uh, This has been urged in uh, writings by, for example, Dr. Moshe Halevi Spiros, written on the connection between psychotherapy and tshuva. Very interesting article by uh, Drs. Michelle Friedman and Rachel Yehuda on this uh, on this topic. There are some interesting connections to explore there. In a sense, you know, changing character traits is easier now than it was, uh, you know, centuries and centuries ago. Uh, then there are also old remedies that were proposed by Rambam and Hilchos You know, move to a new environment. No one wants to do that, but uh, you know, but but realistically, change is slow, and you really. Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say that you can treat the holiday season as a time when you just get that new car, new car um, uh, o- overnight. As I say, it's not like in the movies. So in that case, I think a realistic approach to tshuva, if you follow some of the limitations on free will that I've been talking about, um, would have us each ask ourselves, you know, what is realistic for me this year? What is my nikudat abachira? What can I achieve this year? How can I do it? And what can't I achieve? When can I achieve it instead? How long can I postpone it? And you sort of have to hope that that will be, in fact, you can be assured, that, that will be good enough for God. <laughs> that much, in other words, I'm saying. <laughs> now, and that, you know, and the idea is that that would somehow be, be good enough for God. It's kind of a, a gradualistic approach to tshuva. Um, but even this is a controversial view, I have to tell you. Somebody advocated this in the Jewish Observer. Here we go again. Five-page article about the need to just take it step by step by step by step. Don't try to do it all at once. And then there was another article that criticized that approach and said basically that you can do anything you want as long as you will it. You know, you can do it at any time. Uh, but I do think that the sense of realism is important and that hopefully the rhetoric of that I've been speaking about 
will help to make it the reality for all of us. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't hear. Nice example. I guess the idea would simply be that Rav Dessler, you know, Rav Dessler was an advocate of, uh, of Das Torah, and I think that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I see exactly what you want, but the idea would be that this represents Das Torah. And then, of course, that's where we had the problem in the, in the responses, those who want to sort of reverse this understanding, was that this is not, uh, quote, the Torah Hashkafa. That, that was the, uh, or not the Torah, just plain Torah Hashkafa. Yeah, I think so. Right, right. But the, to, make, to make everything uniform, you say Rav Dessler didn't say this. Uh, recently, I actually heard, heard a, 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 a tape recently of uh, you know a very good speaker. I don't want I don't want to give the name. You know, a, a very good speaker, very very you know intelligent, sophisticated, who speaks to both uh, uh, you know middle of the road audiences and and, and, and speaks to right wing audiences. And um, it was a very good presentation, but just one thing bothered me. He got to he was set up the issue of free will, and then he said the Jewish view is. And then came Rav Dessler, and that was the 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 Jewish view. I don't know if he had read <laughs> the people who, who transformed that whole uh, you know that, that whole understanding of it. But uh, there are many many different understandings of free will. I should have mentioned way at the top even earlier when I said you know I say the Rambam rhetoric. The Rambam himself says quite a number of things about things that constrain people's choices. You know the constitution of a person's brain and things like that. Uh, you know are things that. You know that that limit limit choice. I mean, and, and yet when he speaks in Hilfos Truva, it's just you know it's, uh, as I say, it's it's rhetoric. But that's the way he that's the way he works because it's inspiring. It brings people up to a certain uh, you know, to, to a certain standard. Uh, it gives people a, a kind of moral courage, and I think that that's those are rationales for doing it. And that's from Hilfos Truva from the God of the Perplex, where he says something like that. Yeah. Yeah, he, he doesn't make it clear, except that it's a kind of um, it, it's a natural law model. Uh, let me let me back up a little. Actually, see, there was this uh, debate goes back to the, really to the end of the nineteenth century when in, in the um, the Muslim movement brought up questions about sort of how you change, you know, how you can change your character and so forth. And there like two views of the self emerge. You know, one view of the self is just that the self just is a collection of desires. Desires and inclinations. So when you say that uh, you know you choose one thing, what you really mean is that one desire beat out the other. 
The other is that behind all of the uh, inclinations and desires, there is some mysterious thing we call the self. Can't identify it, can't describe it, but it is distinct from the desires. So it's a kind, it's a kind of executive officer, you know, who, who decides. Okay, you win, you lose. We're talking to the, the desires. Uh, now, what, what the Rebbe is doing is he has re- is reinstating the old model and attributing this to chapter two because he simply doesn't think that the person in chapter two has um, invoked that deeper self. Person in chapter two is really just subject to desires, which is not, and there's just no way to explain it. Sometimes it, 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 there's certain kinds of examples I can give you. A very prosaic example: I go to uh, uh, I go to Carvel, and um, uh, I sometimes have vanilla, sometimes have chocolate. I'm trying to decide which one I want today. Right, and I say, okay, I'll have vanilla. Now, there's no, free, it's not a deliberation. It's just something that happened to me because the two desires for the chocolate and vanilla were fighting out, and today vanilla won. Tomorrow, chocolate will win. And we very often have these kinds of <coughs> situations where, um, w- where there's really very little rational choice involved. Now, obviously, in the case Rambam describes, ideally, a person ought to be thinking about what's the right thing, what's the wrong thing, and so forth. But here, you know, it's just, Rambam says, there's no, the sort of, the, the self isn't doing, you know, isn't really doing anything here. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, as you're saying, some of, the, some of the things in the earlier chapters imply that there's a change in character, yes, change of self, but, and the rub sort of doesn't really, you know, it's really a catch on how, how the rub presents it. But um, overall, though, I still think that the distinction itself is a very true, a very true distinction. And what the Rambam would be saying, according to the Rav, is exactly what you just said, which is that ultimately you can't have tshuva without change of character. You know, people really, if I can just <laughs> take one minute with this. Um, I, th- I think around this time of year, a lot of people really do focus too much on actions and not enough on the larger implications of their actions. Um, and I, I, the, the, the re- one reason I say this has to do with this concept of asking mechila from somebody, you know, for something, you know, for something they did, uh, something they did wrong. The person, you know, will apologize uh, for what they did, but they're just going to be the same kind of person, you know, the following year. You don't see a real change in them, and you don't see a change in them the year after. So there might be certain kinds of things they'll stay away from, but but otherwise, you know, they just keep doing the same kinds of things, kinds of things, the same same things. And I think it's because they're just sort of not looking at the whole picture. And unfortunately, um, when, when Rabbanim give tshuva drushes on, uh, you know, uh, based on the Rambam, the tshuva drushes almost always deal with the first four chapters, which deal with kapara and deal with the scales, weighing the scales and all this kind of stuff and, uh, and so forth and so on. And the chapter two that we talked about, almost, you very rarely hear a tshuva drusha that goes, you know, that goes 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 into the second uh, second kind of tshuva. And it's sort of ironic because in the, in, in second kind, near the end, as you keep going through Hilchas Tshuva, as you're really near the end of Hilchas Tshuva, um, Rambam says that you should be, oh, you should serve God without any ulterior interest. Go back to the chapters, the ones that are always discussed in these Tshuva Trushes, 
there he's talking about how well you know you get you get some rewards for this and you get some punishments for this and it's a whole different way of talking so you sort of never get up to the you know to the more sweeping uh, you know majestic vision of the Rambam of changing yourself totally so I think most people do focus still too much on actions not on subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. That's true. That's true. Right. Yeah, yeah. But that and been saying yeah. Okay. Doesn't doesn't have to fit perfectly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Forgive me if this wasn't what you were looking.